uh, I was still trying to graduate college. We were living in a studio apartment. It was an 11 by 16 foot room. It basically had the equivalent of an easy bake oven as a stove. It had a micro fridge that had to hold all of our food but would sometimes get stuck open and we'd lose everything. Uh, and even in that little apartment, we had a piano because there are priorities in life and music is one of them. We had no car though because when you live in the city, it's kind of just what you do. You don't, you don't need a car. You just kind of keep going. You use public transportation. Yeah, you just you get around. And you know, even when we did need a car, what we do is we just hop on the metro, go out to the suburbs, borrow a car from my parents. But then all of a sudden, we had a newborn. And newborns have newborn responsibilities, like going to the doctor often and going and being carted around to see all the hundreds of loving family members that just want to see and hold and kiss them. And so we needed a car. And we had these generous relatives who wanted to bless us by giving us a vehicle. And so they said, we'll give you some money, pick out a vehicle. And so I did all this research. I looked into, you know, what do we need? We knew we were going to be moving soon, so we wanted something big enough for that. We wanted something safe, something that would last us. And so I did this research, and I picked out a car that was like, this is a good deal. Let's do this. And I brought it to my wife and said, what do you think? And she said, I'm good with what you pick. So we bought the van, and it served us for years, and then it serves one of my family members now. And I found out later, though, that that was actually really difficult for my wife. Because my wife had, according to her, very strong opinions about vehicles. She knew what she wanted, but she wanted to lay that aside and follow what I thought was right. Flash forward three years, uh, we had a tiny bit more money, but not much. We wanted to adopt. It had been something that was on our hearts for years. It was something we talked about even when we were just dating, something that we had talked about before having our son. And so we were getting this closer and closer and we were talking about it and talking about it and we came to this point where my wife was like we need to do this it's time and in my fear i was like but the money like it's it's cost more to adopt than we're currently making in a year and i'll never forget my wife came to me and said you should never let god stop or let never let money become what stops you from following god and i trusted her call and I trusted how God was leading her and starting this process already in her. And so we started. We started the process of adoption. And guess what? The funds came in time and time again by every deadline that we needed. And now we have our beautiful little girl who just turned two. See, in our marriage, there's this wonderful relationship. We have a friendship, a closeness that I didn't even know was possible. We trust one another. We lean on one another. We're there for one another. We are two firstborns with firstborn opinions that are strong, and we want what we want, but we work together as a team. We make decisions for our family together. We rely on one another for wisdom. We support. We encourage one another. We point each other back to God. And just a couple of examples of the good things that have come from that are a van that, it was an okay pick. Like, let's be real. But we got an amazing little girl who is such an incredible answer to prayer and blessing each day. Even though she's two and has all the opinions of a strong-willed two-year-old, she is a blessing every day. And so about a month ago, Gary asked me to preach, and he said, what part of the Bible has shaped your marriage? What has encouraged you? What has guided you? And after giving it some thought, I knew the passage that I wanted to share 
a verse from Scripture that has encouraged me and called me to be a better husband time and time again. But it's complicated because the Bible is, on one hand, the Word of God. It is living and active. It cuts through our heart and hearts, comforts the lost, comforts the broken. It guides all those who need help. But unfortunately, it's also been twisted for evil gain. It has been attached to destructive crusades and called upon those by didn't believe it was real but knew they could use it to their own benefit. One of the passages in the Bible that has been twisted and used for the oppression of others for hundreds of years is the one we're going to be looking at today. These verses have been used incorrectly to teach inferiority. They've been used to justify abuse, used to raise up servants, instead of spouses. And because of the brokenness surrounding this passage uh, from this incorrect view and this incorrect teaching, this is a passage that I said, I'm going to take this one verse and I'm going to take that and the rest of it I'm going to ignore because I don't want to deal with the brokenness surrounding it. But I think that if we allow the Holy Spirit to guide us through this, if we allow the Holy Spirit to be moving in us, to teach us what the verses and the passage actually means, and to show us what God's will for our lives is in here, we'll find beauty. We'll find revolutionary cultural thinking that was revolutionary then and is still revolutionary today. And it will be a guide to having a marriage that is life-giving, that helps us to build a bond between a husband and wife that glorifies God and leads to a connection that cannot be broken. So as we get into the text today, if you're the type of person that wants to know, like, what's in it for me? If you're married, this will hopefully be an encouragement. This will hopefully spurn you forward to having a better and more complete marriage. And if you're single or wherever else between that line of single and married, I would encourage you to hear this and learn more about our amazing God who loves us and teaches us how to love others. And one more thing before we dive into the text. I want you to keep your mind open, that you would ask God what he would have for you in his word today. And that if you have any questions, if you have any thoughts, any struggles in this text or in anything I'm about to say, that you come, talk to someone at New Hope, talk to myself, talk to one of the other leaders. I know it's easy online to just say, I don't like what you're saying, I'm going to I'm done, I'm clicking off, I'm, you know, I don't need to listen to this anymore, but I would encourage you, listen to the whole thing, because this is a difficult passage, but we need to wrestle through this together as a congregation. We're going to do something a little different. Today, we're going to read the whole passage, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to see what God has for us verse by verse. We're going to be in Ephesians 5, starting in 22 today. It says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, with the, of washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot, without a wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, leading up to this in the book of Ephesians, Paul has been talking about Jesus Christ and that he raises us from the dead and that calls us to something greater. Just like that song we were just singing talks about us being raised up to life and doing something new, not being caught in our deadness anymore. And part of this something new and something greater is the way that Christians interact with one another. And Paul calls us for unity within the church and that believers should walk in love as they imitate Christ. And then Paul's going to move on to see how marriages should be different. And we get here to verse 22. This is where we're going to wrestle through. Verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. When we look at this first part of this passage, we kind of get faced with what in the world is submission. And I don't know what your gut reaction is. Mine is kind of like, ugh, like submission? Like a wrestling term? Like this idea of two opponents being locked in confrontation. And finally, one person gets over the other, and the other person submits because they've been broken and beaten down. Someone wins, someone ends up on top. So instead of looking at submission, and that word that is an English word, let's look at what Paul originally wrote, what God intended in this word. And the word that was originally there is hupotasso. It's kind of fun to say, kind of for some reason it always makes me think of the word hippopotamus, but hupotasso is this idea of placing oneself under the authority of another. But let's compare that with what Paul says just a passage later when he's talking about children and parents and that relationship. In that passage, Paul says, Hupakuete, your parents. Children, Hupakuete, your parents. And what is going on there is the word obey. See, same kind of root word in first, but completely different meaning. It means, Hupakuete means to obey. Do you see the difference? Not wives, obey your husbands. Not wives, do everything your husband says. But when it comes to your husband and your husband alone, not anyone else's husband, place yourself willingly under him as you do Christ. I, I love weddings. I think they're fun, um, fantastic times. You have the lovey-dovey couple who's so in love and they're just like floating around and they're just so in love and you get to dress up nice and there's always lots of food. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. It's kind of like hit or miss. And there's always a bunch of people who like don't know how to dance, but they're going to dance anyway. It's, it's hilarious. Uh, but they always get to this part at the sermon part where the pastor usually asks the bride, will you submit and obey? And it's at this point in the wedding where everything in me is just wanting to stand up and yell at the guy, I object! to your interpretation and to you adding words that aren't supposed to be there. 
There's been a lot of misconceptions for years about what submission is and what the call actually is in this passage. And we just hinted at one of them. That being our wives are supposed to obey their husbands. That's not what the word means. And we see elsewhere in the Bible, in 1 Peter especially, the example of wives, they're married to guys who don't even follow God. What would happen if your unbelieving, or let's say even your believing husband, asks you to do something that is against God's will? Something that God wouldn't want. Are you supposed to just go along with it? But see, all believers submit first and foremost to God. Anything else anyone asks of us that contradicts God's plan, we lovingly say, no, I can't do that. So submission doesn't mean just blindly obeying or blindly following your husband. Another thing that has been uh, associated with submission, unfortunately, is weakness. But uh, submission has nothing to do with being passive or weak. Go back all the way to Proverbs 31 when they give us a description of what the excellent wife is and how does she act. She is strong and courageous. She takes initiative. She is wise and noble. She works hard. She is fearless and ready for whatever comes her way. I was listening to this podcast recently from a husband and wife, and they were talking about marriage. And the wife was saying that because of the way submission had been taught in her church growing up, she was often hesitant and afraid to do the things that God wanted her to do because she didn't think that was her role. You see, this verse and this command of submission is not a call to hold back. It's not a call of weakness. It's a call of strength. A call of, yes, you have every right and every authority. Now lay them down, just as Christ did. Another misconception about what submission is, is that submission somehow means less than, that it means inferior. Unfortunately, submission has been taken to mean not equal for many people, but it has nothing to do with this. Unless, of course, our example of submission, the ultimate example of submission, Jesus Christ is somehow inferior to God the Father when he submits and when he lays down his life. But the last I checked, they're both God. They're still equal members of the Trinity, still completely one, still completely God. Rather, the call of submission is a call saying, I'm going to lay down my desires, and I'm going to honor you and respect you Not because of you, sometimes because of you, but not because of you, but because of Christ. Because of what he's done in my life. I'm going to trust him by supporting you as my husband. This idea of submission is going to look so different in so many different marriages. So much so that I feel like I've had trouble figuring out from other people what submission actually looks like in their own marriage. And so I'll just share a little bit about how it's looked in my life and in my uh, marriage with my wonderful wife, Katie. Some of you know her. She is the worship director here at New Hope. And if you don't know her, you should meet her because she's way nicer, way kinder than me. She makes me look like bad cop because she is such a good cop. Like, she's so great. She's so kind. And we've been married for a little over six years. And if I ever need to remember how long we've been married, I do this really cool mathematical trick where I take my son's age and add nine months And somehow I get the exact number of months and years we've been married. Um, And one of the things that comes up in that, in our marriage, 
is that my wife and I have divided our responsibilities in our household based on our strengths and our skill sets. Katie balances our finances, does all of our important uh, paperwork, orders all of our groceries so that we never like run out of really important stuff because she's the most organized and thorough person I have ever met. And even though she's doing all of these things, she still consults me. She still asks me questions about what I want, what are my desires in that. We have conversations about all the major decisions that are going on. And it's not because she's somehow like not fully capable of making a decision for herself. It's not because she wants me or needs me to approve of everything she's doing. It's not because she's afraid of my reaction if she like makes a decision without me. It's because she honors me in this way. It's because she supports and respects me. Because, let's be real, asking for my opinion is not always an easy thing to do. Because I'm a firstborn. My wife is a firstborn. We both know how we want things. We know exactly how things should be done. But yet she still seeks out my input. And just as like a side note, I know some people who are listening or hearing are going to be saying they've been married for 20, 25, 30 years, lots more time than I have. And I know I've been only married for six years, but in those six years, we've made a lot of important decisions. We've had two kids, one through adoption, which was a big decision. We've bought a house. We've bought multiple cars. We've, we've done things that required hard decisions and hard talks. And in all of that, we've never made a big decision where we burnt, won't, uh, weren't both fully on board. Because so often we would have something where someone would be leading, like someone, God would be leading my wife and pulling her in one direction, I'd say, yes, I'm going to support that. And sometimes God would be leading me, and she would say, yes, I'm going to support that. But we've always come together and as one made these decisions. So often, because we're both following God, he's already working in our hearts separately, and so by the time we get come together and make that decision, we're already both there. And as I was processing this difficult idea, this difficult topic of submission, I just asked my wife straight up. I said, how does this look in our marriage? And her response was, submission is thinking of others above yourself. As much as I can, I try to do what is your choice. Sometimes you feel strongly about certain things, and we do it. Sometimes I feel strongly about certain things, and you respect that, and you follow me in that decision. I love what my wife said there. Because of this back-and-forth conversation, our relationship is able to be so much greater. Our marriage is able to honor one another because of those conversations. And so, so far, we're really killing it in this passage. We've made it through one verse of this whole passage, so we better keep moving. Verse 23 says this, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. I don't want to get into this too much because we're going to be picking up this idea in just a moment. But the thing with this is Christ is the head of the church. And this comparison is going to be made with marriage. But even though marriage is a picture of that relationship of Christ and his bride, it falls so short of the actual glory of it. Because not only is the church a part of Christ, not only is it part of his body, not only has he connected himself to the church, but Christ is the savior of the church. He gave his life. He died. He gave his perfect, spotless life so that the church could live. He died the death that we deserved. He paid the price for the sins of his bride. And that goes beyond anything a husband could ever do. 
Christ as the head of the church empowers, equips, guides his bride. Through Jesus Christ, we have the Holy Spirit working in us to empower us, to guide us. So hold on to that idea as we move and talk about the role of husbands in just a second. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Wives, I'm not going to pretend like this is an easy call. Just as the call that we're going to talk about for husbands is not an easy call. This is going to be a hard giving of oneself. But we're going to continue on and we're going to see that in this passage is an amazing plan. And the way that this is going to impact our marriages is ultimately going to contribute to the marriage that God intends for us. And husbands, before you start to get any ideas and like you're off the hook, let's continue forward because we have some verses for you. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. How did Christ love the church? He gave his life. He gave everything he had. He poured out himself for her, despite the cost, despite the pain, despite everything. He gave of himself. Christ didn't do this out of selfish gain. Christ didn't serve because he thought somehow it would make him look good, because he thought somehow he would get something out of it. He didn't serve his bride because he wanted to look good or impress her or impress other people. He didn't do it begrudgingly or because somehow his bride was nagging him to go die for her or something like that. But Christ did it out of love. He did it for the purpose of taking care of his bride, of nourishing her, of redeeming her. Husbands, have you died for your wife recently? Have you given of yourself when there was no chance of reward? Have you served your wife when there was no chance of later reward? This is our call. This verse in particular has called me out numerous times throughout my marriage when I've been exhausted and wanted nothing more than just sit and do absolutely nothing. But I know that if I do that, I'm going to leave all of this work on my wife's already full plate. When I've wanted to get my way, wanted things the way that I wanted them, but in realizing doing so, I would hurt or put more stress on my wife. When I've been hurt or frustrated, and there's conflict between my wife and I. And the very last thing I want to do is be the first one to apologize. Am I dying to myself? Am I giving my everything? Am I willing to go beyond myself and love her well? See, our call as husbands is not simply a call to provide, to bring home the bacon, or to be served by our wives, or to focus on ourselves and our own needs. We are called to give everything we have to our wives. And this is not an easy call. Just as submission to husbands is not an easy call. It's nothing light. This call of loving our wives, we have an example in it. We have a game plan. We are supposed to follow Christ in the way he did it, who endured suffering, who endured the shame of the cross, who time and time again gave himself to a church that would leave him, that would forsake him, that would turn her back on him. Christ did it. Now we have the goal and the opportunity to follow in that example and give ourselves to our brides as Christ gave to his. Let's see how else this affects our marriages. 
verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of, our, of his body. We all kind of get the basics of taking care of our own bodies. We get hungry, so we feed it. We get hurt, so we use bandages and try to protect the area that is broken and hurt. We start to smell, so we shower. We get tired, so we sleep or drink copious amounts of delicious coffee. In general, we know how to take care of our bodies. We know the needs. We fulfill them. When we have a medical problem, we'll go to multiple doctors and we'll do whatever it takes to figure out what the problem is and try to make it right. Sometimes we even go the extra mile. We work out to keep our bodies strong. We get haircuts and pedicures and manicures to keep ourselves presented as the best version of ourselves. And that's how we're called to love our wives, naturally and intuitively. When our wives need help, step up, serve. When our wives have had a bad day and need to talk, drop what you're doing and listen. Connect to your wife to learn her and know her intimately and deeply, so much so that her needs are second nature to you and that fulfilling them is just as natural as taking care of your own needs. Now, I will admit I have not always been good at this. I spent the first couple of years of marriage thinking I'm a great husband, thinking that I listened well, thinking that I loved my wife well and served her well. Uh, one example of this is that when we graduated college and we were done with that, we moved back to the area where I grew up, this area. And so my wife is going to parties, like parties, you know, like family gatherings and stuff, of, and hanging out with all these people that she doesn't know. And I would be so excited in those moments to like be around people I know that I would leave her at these events in a crowd full of strangers. Sometimes my parents would be there, but she had just met them. And so I was selfishly leaving my poor wife with a brand new baby in a party of people that she had never known because I was only looking out for myself. I was only looking at the things that I wanted. And so it messed up our family, and my wife suffered for it, and it took a lot of time and energy to work back and to come back and get our place, our marriage, in a better place from there. Because I didn't treat my wife as my own flesh. Because if I had, I would have looked out for her needs first. Notice in verse 29, it says, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. This is going above and beyond to make sure their wife has everything that she needs to accomplish all that God has for her. That your wife not just feels like she's surviving, but that she, but you do everything in your power to make sure that woman thrives. Um, even before we were married, my wife was already kind and generous and supporting and loving me. Uh, we, when we were engaged, my wife spent thousands of dollars to pay for my school bills. And it blew me away of because I somehow had this idea that, oh, we're not married yet. You shouldn't do that. But she was willing to give of herself and work long hours to help support and get me through school. Even when I've had jobs more recently where I wasn't making very much, but it was the right job for me. My wife has worked hard and supported our family as well, and we've done that together because she supports me and supports my desires and supports what fulfills me. And Katie doesn't ask for much. 
She's not someone who like wants a lot of material things. It's really hard to get gifts for her because she is not like a material person. She looks out for the needs of others. And I'm going to share this awkward moment, though, where I had the opportunity to finally give back to this woman that has given and given and given. Uh, a couple years, the last couple years, my wife has been feeling this call and this pull to counseling, to make the change career-wise and be able to counsel others. Um, and she just started having this leading and wanting and desiring to go back and get her uh, master's so that she could counsel. Um, and I, this is something she's already doing in her multiple jobs. She already has that going on, kind of, um, and just the way she cares for us, others. Uh, and so we looked at the cost. What would it take for our family of, you know, running our household? What would it look like to work this out since Katie's already works at our church and has a job teaching piano and voice and does stuff at home, and we have two young kids? What's the mental, emotional, physical cost of doing this? And when she asked me if, she th if I thought that she should go, she, like, thought it was a selfish thing. But I immediately said, yes, you need to do this. Because even though grad school means more on my plate of more nights home alone with our two and our five-year-old, it means more work around the house, more responsibilities, less time with my wonderful wife. It means less money for other things in our lives. Do you know why I said yes with hesitation? Because I support my wife's calling 100%. She has gifts that God has given her and she's already using in the lives of countless number of people. People talk to her because they feel listened to. Some of her piano students or boy students will hold on to little nuggets of their life for two, three weeks sometimes because they want to tell her. Because they know that she'll listen. And I will do whatever it takes to make sure that my wife can serve God as he made her. And she's done the same for me time and time again. I don't do this perfectly. It doesn't mean I haven't struggled through the process even as grad school started. It doesn't mean I haven't had a bad attitude on certain days. And it doesn't mean that starting off our marriage, we started off on the perfect right foot and I, tr I didn't always treat my wife perfectly like this. But at, and I already mentioned that about the regrets I have. But I'm learning from that. I want to choose to be a husband that supports her and that gives of myself. I want to act in a manner that builds her up, supports her desires, instead of ripping her down. I want to lay down my desires to serve her. This is my calling, to love and nourish my wife. But this idea doesn't come from a vacuum. This is not something new. This is not something I learned from other people, although they modeled it as well. This idea comes from Christ. It comes from his example. Verse 30 says this, because we are members of his body. We are members of the church. Not just the local church, not just New Hope, but members of the universal church across the world over 2,000 years. We are intentionally a part of his body. Colossians 1.18 says this, and he is the head of the body, referring to Christ. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Christ has intentionally attached us to himself. He has allowed us to become a part of his body. And just as the Bible calls husbands here to treat their wives as they would care for their own bodies, so first Christ modeled this for us. He modeled this intimate, loving, 
care for his church. He did it when he paid for their sins. And he did it when he rose from the grave. And he did it when he conquered death. And he does it to this day in the sustaining of the church. In the empowering of the church. Let's read the rest of this passage. It says in verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here Paul points back to the very beginning of time when God instituted marriage. He gave this command, leave what you know. Forgo the connections that you have. Forgo your family. Those connections have been so important up to this moment. Those connections have pulled you back home. Those connections took first priority in your life. Cut them. Because there is a new connection that comes first and foremost for you. A new relationship, a new home. Hold fast to your wife. And the two of you become one. One team. One family. One equal partnership that has the same goal of following Christ. Now this mystery that Paul speaks of here is that of Christ and this union with his church. God planted this picture thousands of years before Jesus would even walk the earth. And our marriages are called to be an example, a picture of the glory of God's plan, a relationship of sacrifice and giving, a relationship guided by love. Last week, Pastor Gary talked about the definition of love from 1 Corinthians 13. And just a reminder, in case you missed it, love is a posture It's a decision. Love is patient and kind. It's focused on the needs of others. It considers others above oneself. Verse 33 says, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I've heard this stereotype that all men just want to be respected and all women want to be loved. And it's not like that's not sometimes the case, but I think believing that limits the complexity of how God has created us as human beings. If I love my wife and cherish her completely, but I don't respect her as the intelligent, hardworking, beautiful woman that she is, I am missing out on a chance to nourish and cherish her completely. And if my wife respects me from dusk till dawn, but doesn't show me love and tenderness, doesn't meet me where I'm at, doesn't listen to my fears and insecurities, is she actually loving me fully? I want to suggest there's something going on here deeper than just outdated stereotypes. Go back to the beginning. Right after sin enters the world, right after Adam and Eve choose and turn their backs on God, the natural consequences of their decision are seen. In speaking to Eve, God says this in Genesis 3.16, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The desire refers to a desire to control people. People, sorry. God tells Eve, part of the pain of sin, the destruction of sin, is that you're going to want to rule over your husband. You are going to want to control him. But he's going to rule over you. He's going to dominate and exercise mastery over you. There will be this battle of wills going back, back and forth between you because of sin. Because of sin, the relationship that was designed to be this perfect union between two people is hindered and changed. But our God, our God, 
is a God of healing. A God who doesn't leave things broken. A God who rescues and redeems. Because of the, the coming of Christ is hinted. When God says to the serpent, right before that, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Because when Jesus Christ died on the cross and crushed sin and crushed the power of sin, he in turn was bruised and battered and suffered on our behalf. In the middle of that, not only was he creating a way for the relationship with us to be uh, healed and rendered that we could be in relationship with God, he was healing the relationship of us with one another. God is saying in this passage, Wives, you're going to want to control your husband. Instead, lay down your life. Place his needs above your own. And to husbands, he's going to say, you're going to want to dominate your wife. Show authority over her. Instead of that, give completely. And when you do, you become an unstoppable force. When you know her needs, and you don't just fulfill them, but you nourish them and cherish them, and she loves and respects you. We are no longer individuals with the strength of one who are just looking out for one another, for ourselves. We are a couple that is bound together and strengthened by God because us as couples can't do this alone. Without God working in our lives, without the Holy Spirit empowering us to love and give of ourselves, this task is going to be impossible. There have been many times in my own marriage when I've struggled and felt like I couldn't do it. And I've called out to God because I didn't have the strength to do what God was calling me to do. I didn't have the strength to be patient. I didn't have the strength to show grace. I didn't have the strength to think of anyone other than myself. And in those moments, God met me time and time again. Because when we call upon his strength, he fills us and equips us to do all all that he asks of us. And I don't want anyone to walk away this morning without being able to have some real practical ways that they can do this in their marriage if you're not already doing them. Use your words to build up your spouse. You will hopefully never hear anything come out of my mouth against my wife. I never want to belittle and put down that fantastic woman that God has given to me as my best friend. There is so much and so many people in this world that are going to tear her down with words. I do not want to be one of them. I tell people of her strength. I share of her great ideas. Speak of her passions, her interests. I want to be my wife's number one fan, her biggest supporter, her number one hype man. And guess what? My wife does the same for me. She talks me up. She encourages me to my face. And when I'm not there, I know she's advocating for me telling others of my strengths and my gifts. So my wife gets hit on sometimes by guys who don't know she's married, and sometimes they do know and somehow try to hit on her anyways. And one of the many, many, many reasons I don't have to worry about that is because I know that when guys try to smooth talk her or even on occasion put me down in her presence, my wife is going to be quick to uplift me and talk me up. And one such example is with her uh, grad classes. Because they are on Zoom, she does them in, her, in our like, office music studio. Um, and they can see her background. And so one of the guys was like chatting her up and like, you know, trying to smooth talk her. And he goes, yo, I like the doors behind you. Because there was barn, like sliding barn doors. And she instantly responded, oh yeah, my husband made them. 
He built them from scratch. And she just started like bragging on me. Not only does this encourage me as a husband, but it builds trust. And we do this for one another. Use your words to encourage your spouse. And it's not that either of us like thinks the other is perfect. We know each other's sins and mistakes and um, weaknesses more than anyone else. But we choose to respect, love, and cherish one another by building each other up with our words and showing support in our conversations that we have with other people. Second thing, assume the best of your spouse. It can be easy when your spouse does something that like, you're not a fan of or something that you, like, you're kind of not sure why they did that. It's easy to start to assume, like, oh, they picked that? They don't, they don't know that I don't like that one? They don't remember? I bet he doesn't even care. I bet she doesn't remember. She probably thinks, he probably thinks. Instead of assuming and chasing down a rabbit hole of defeating thoughts, assume the best of your spouse. Thirdly, it's not your goal to change your spouse. You can encourage and support and lift up your spouse, but you, you can't change them. That's God's role. And you notice the commands in here are commands straight to the individual couples. It's not saying, wives, tell your or wives, tell your husband that he needs to love you. It's not, husbands, tell your wives that she needs to submit. But instead, we model the behavior. Husbands, love your wives, and your wife will see that, and it will change her. Wives, respect and honor and submit to your husbands, and he will see that, and it will change him. In the First Peter verse that we're talking about later, that passage, it's talking about the example the wives set will change the lives of the unbelieving husbands. Because of that example, their lives will be forever changed. Lastly, let go of the little things. Let's be real. Marriage, is, it's hard. You are around someone for long periods of time. You are around them through the good, the bad, the ugly, the sick. When she's sick, when you're sick, when you're weak, when you're tired, when you're grumpy. <laughs> and there's going to be things that come up in your spouse that might frustrate you or annoy you. One of the problems I made early on in my marriage was trying to have a conversation about one, every little thing that like, annoyed me or bothered me. Because I thought for some reason that was like my job to change. But marriage isn't about fixing your spouse. It's about building your relationship and fixing yourself first. Letting God fix you and letting that pour into everything else. And I'm not talking about sin. I'm not talking about ignoring sin or going along with sin. I'm not talking about life-altering things, but the nitpicky stuff. The random noises your spouse makes when they're sleeping or eating, the <laughs> you know, like those things. It's the objects that your spouse maybe loses or misplaces constantly. Love them where they're at. Don't let the little things become big things that stand in the way of your relationship. There's a verse in Song of Solomon when it talks about uh, don't let the foxes destroy the vineyard. These little things, if we let them, become big things and destroy. Marriage is not for everyone. Not everyone is called to it. But it is something that can be rewarding, encouraging, and strengthening. When we put work in, when we seek to invest in our marriages, we get to see what love is and that Jesus Christ gave of himself. And now we, in turn, as his followers, can love and build one another. New Hope, I pray that our marriages within this church would be honoring to God. 
that people would notice the difference in our marriages and that what we have, they would want it. That our marriages would point back to Christ and that our marriages would not just be life-giving for the couples themselves, but to all those around. Because when we have a marriage that is strong and loving, it impacts the lives of our children. It impacts the lives of our friends, our family members, our co-workers. Because when we love as Christ loves, it pours out on everyone around us. And the world will see and the world will know who God is. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us to have marriages that reflect you. You gave yourself for your bride. You submitted to the will of the Father. You gave everything. Lord, help us to honor, support, love our husbands, love our wives, that we would be couples that are just so knit together. And yes, we're going to struggle, and yes, we're still going to have sin while we're on this earth, but be rooting that out and be creating marriages that are friendships that last forever. Help us, Lord, to follow you first, and foremost in everything that we do and that we'd follow your example, God. In your name, amen. Thank you so much, New Hope. Um, just have a wonderful Sunday and go and love someone.